0: Well, good morning. want to add my greeting to that, which has already been spoken by everyone you've heard from this morning. And I want to welcome you to worship at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here, and we're right in the middle of what has been, for me, a very challenging but at the same time very rewarding sermon series in the book of 1 John. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to continue in a spirit- And attitude of worship, and take your Bibles and open it up to 1 John chapter 2. And we're gonna begin this morning in verse 18. It's a delicate and a dicey section of this epistle, but we're gonna walk through this thing together. And I wanna sort of frame the whole message, the full discussion that John's writing to these people, and I wanna I wanna put a frame around it that looks like this: truth. Increasingly In our day and age, the concept of truth has been scrutinized a great deal. What is truth? You've probably heard asked a time or seven by various media personalities, political personnel. What is truth? Can anyone actually know what truth is? Is truth absolute? And the way that you answer that question or those questions really says an awful lot about the way in which you view the world in which you live. How does one come to know truth if there is such a thing? This is a big fancy word we call epistemology. How do we know what we know? How do we really know what we claim to know? There are, of course, a lot of different sources of truth that exist in the world, Many of them are helpful. Some of them are not. But what we always say is that Scripture is the only infallible, inerrant source of truth. It's the only one. There's a lot of things out there that are helpful. Emotion and experience, general revelation, what we see in the created order, tradition, reason. All those things are good, but Scripture is the only infallible, inerrant source of truth. And so it is primary. Primary. It must always be at the very front and foremost of our thinking. This is what helps us to know what is true and what is truth. Now, you may or may not know this about yourself, but when we believe something, we are claiming that it is true. That's what we mean. When you say, I believe that, what you're saying is, that is true. And so we live our lives, we can't help it, we live our lives based on the thing that we believe is true. It's what every human being does. It's not something we try hard to do. It's what we do automatically because we believe a thing is true. It's what it means to walk by faith, to determine what is true, to determine how you came to know that it's true, and then you live your life accordingly. You and I can't but do anything else. I can watch you and follow you around all the days of your life. And by the way, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. It's creepy. It's okay. Get used to me. I'm, all, I'm everywhere. And I go, oh, this is what she thinks is true. This is what he thinks is true. He might say that he thinks this is true, but this is what he does. And so this is what he actually says is true. You and I can't help but live according to what we think is true. And so along comes the gospel. The gospel the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now, if you believe that that's true, you can't help but live your life as though it were true. You don't have to try. It's not like you're having to actively go, oh, 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 that's right, Jesus. Oh, oh, gosh, that's right, Jesus. No, if you believe that it's true, it's just what you do. You can't help but not, and so it's a good time for some self introspection to be honest and say, Do I actually believe that or do I want for it to be true? Those are all the differences in the world. Just wanting something to be true and actually believing that it's true are very different things. If you actually believe that it's true, then it'll automatically, instinctively instruct, inform, and influence all of your decision making without you even having to try. And that's freedom. I know so too many professing Christians that want so bad for it to be true, but they don't actually believe that it's true. And so they're trying so hard and they're actually in bondage to their own trying. It's a miserable way to live. In fact, it's not living at all. But what do we actually believe that's true? The problem or the challenge in our day and age is that there are many other sources of truth that are always getting louder and more articulate and more tailor-made to maintain our attention and sway our affinities all the time. In other groups of people that we associate with and all the different communities that we engage in, there's all these other sources of truth that are bombarding us nonstop. A lot of this is pure and simple social media, if I might be so bold as to meddle. You and I are being targeted as a specific lab-grown data cluster whose responses are just as programmable as any child's robot, algorithmically. And we are increasingly being nudged and pushed and nudged and pushed into believing that these things are true. And so our behavior is actually and practically modified. It's a very scary thing. But praise be to God, there is a defense against these dark arts, we might say. It sets us up for our big idea this morning. It comes from first John chapter 2. It goes like this. Abide in the announcement. Now, I could have said it a lot of different ways. I could have said go in the gospel, but you know me, I kind of wanted to use the primary verb from this passage, abide. And since we always say that the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, I want for all of us, as I've been prayerfully preparing for this morning, to abide in the announcement. Remember that John is an old guy, and he's writing to a bunch of people that he loves who are struggling. He loves the Lord and he loves these people. And what he wants for them more than anything else is for them to have, what is our theme for the entire letter, for them to have abiding assurance. My hope is that by the time we finish our study this morning, you too will have abiding assurance and that it will ever increasingly go and grow. So we're going to read our passage from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and then we'll very quickly unpack this deal. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. John the Apostle writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, important contrast here, have been anointed by the holy one and you all have knowledge i write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth sometimes john just writes and you think is he writing reading this off of a laffy taffy wrapper what's happening <laughs> the blue dog lives in greece and hits his head twice like what <laughs> well this actually does mean something we're going to circle back to this and unpack it verse 22 I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie just as it has taught you abide in him believe it or not this is God's word and it's awesome I want to be as efficient and nimble as I can walking through this very delicate text. There's a whole lot of hairpin turns and some strange little facts that John drops in here. But we're going to move through this pretty briefly. Let me start over in verse 18. He calls them children, paideia. It's a term of affection. It is not a term of condescension as though they were less than. It's not a term of saying, hey, you don't know very much. You're immature. You're foolish. Not at all. It is a pastoral shepherd's term. He loves these people. Children, it is the last hour. And this has tripped up people for a very long time. What does that mean? What does that mean? There was Hurricane Harvey in Houston, as Ashley mentioned. Is it, are we in the last hour? Yes. There's a Hurricane Delta. Oh my gosh, are we in the last hour? Yes. There's a contentious political election I'm coming. Are we in the last hour? Yes. And we have been for 2,000 years. When the writers of the New Testament talk about the last hour, it has nothing to do with duration and everything to do with type or kind. It is saying this is the final age before the return of the God-man king. So whether he tarries another 2,000 years, it matters not. We are living in the last hour. Now, you don't ever want to try to interpret Scripture through the headlines or the newspapers or the websites, that's always a bad idea. Oh man, I heard there's an asteroid hurtling towards the earth. going to hit on November 2nd. I'm voting for that thing. Well, you can't write in the asteroid, although that would be awesome. Not a way to interpret scripture is through media headlines. It, things have been going on for 2,000 years. Yes, we are in the last hour. Peter said it in Acts chapter two. This is that, it has begun, it has inaugurated. It's not fully blossomed, it's not fully flourished, but it has sparked off, it has begun. It is the last hour, he says. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. So everyone always wants to know, who is it, who is it? Was it the last guy that was in office? No, is it the guy that's in office now? No, is it the next guy that's gonna be in office? Yes, no I'm kidding. We don't know. It's utterly pointless. The point is he's going to tell us precisely what antichrist actually is with specificity. Now, John is the only New Testament writer to use the term antichrist. It's interesting. The writer of Hebrews, Peter, Paul, James. Nobody else uses the term Antichrist. Paul will call him the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians. John will say Antichrist here many times. He'll say it in 2 John. He'll say it in the book of Revelation. But nobody else uses this title. It's unique to John. It's anti-Messiah. Now that's interesting. The anti-Messiah. It gets translated into Greek as Antichrist. And so we have it in English as Antichrist. But there's a specific meaning that's going on there. It says, many antichrists have come. So there have been several. Throughout the last 2,000 years, several people have emerged. You probably live next door to some of them. Please don't go burn down their house. When you see people in awkward little bicycles and short-sleeved shirts and narrow ties, don't scream at them that they're the antichrist. You know. But you don't need to yell that at them. That's not helpful. Why do I say it that way? Well, we're going to explain what antichrist is. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. How do we know that it's the last hour? Because there are people opposing Jesus. There are people who are in opposition to the claims of Christ. Hey, this is actually good news then. This affirms and confirms that we are alive in the last hour. It's a very exciting time to be alive. Nothing else has to happen before the return of Jesus. Now, you may want for that to be true, or you might actually believe that that's true. And if you actually believe that that's true, that'll change everything about how you actually live your life. You've heard perhaps about the doomsday clock that's getting closer and closer because the ice caps are melting and because the Lakers are going to win the championship and whatever else. For the Christian, it's always 11-59-59. Always. On the edge of your seat, on the tips of your toes. This is very good news. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19 is a chilling verse. People have used this verse for the last mm, 1,900 years in one of two ways, depending on the pastor and the church and the denomination. There are those who will use 1 John 2:19 like this. Well, they left our church. They went out from us, and they are never of us. And so they're dead to us because they left our membership. And so maybe one day we'll see them in heaven, but probably not. That's not at all what John is talking about. See, because here's what we know is that 1 John 2, 19 comes immediately after 1 John 2, 18. Brilliant insight. You can tithe extra for that. Chapter 2, verse 19 is immediately after verse 18, where he's just been talking about many antichrists who have come. And he's going to tell us who they are and what they're like in verse 19. In verse 19, for they went out from us, but they were not of us. John is talking about some of the original followers of Christ in Jerusalem and Judea. No, not the original 12, but some of the early followers of Jesus who were the early members of the church movement in Jerusalem and Judea went out and quickly went off. Now that's really interesting. John said, they went out from us, but they were never really truly of us. He's not talking about the people who've left the church at First Ephesus. Oh, yeah, they got mad about the carpet and they took off and they were never really of us because everybody loves shag. No, no not talking about that, those who came out from Jerusalem and Judea and who quickly began adding something to the gospel, who were denying the deity or the humanity of Christ. Remember, John is a person writing to some people in a place at a period with a problem. Their issue was Gnosticism. There was this false teaching that had come into the church that said Jesus couldn't possibly be man if he was God because God can't be material. That's gross, material is bad. Or there was a other group that were saying, no, 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 he couldn't possibly be God if he was man because he's material, either way. And they were denying that he was actually the second member of the Godhead Trinity. And these people weren't just popping up out of the blue in Ephesus. Oh, no, 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 no. They had come from Jerusalem and Judea and they went out and they went off. John says, that message is antichrist. Little a. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But watch this last phrase. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's a really informative verse. Let me, let me distill down why this is so important. The gospel determines the church and not the other way around. That might not seem like a big deal, but what I've just said is the difference between Roman Catholicism and evangelical Protestantism. The gospel determines the church and not the other way around. And John says that right here. They went out, and therefore they're out because they are out. Because they're outside the confines and the guardianship of the gospel, they're out. We're gonna pick up speed. Verse 20, I don't think the word... Super awesome is really a word, but it should be. And you should write super awesome next to 1 John 2.20 because it's super awesome. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You might have the NIV that might say, you all have knowledge. We're not really sure which it is. This is fine. You all have knowledge. 1 John 2.20 is one of those verses that you, if you're anything like me at all, need to keep stuffed right in the side pocket of your brain. When you have those days when you don't even like you, cause you're just one never ending baking of a failure casserole all day. You just are bad at life. He's just like, oh gosh, I wouldn't save me if I was Jesus and there was nobody else on the planet. You need 1 John 2.20 because John does something so brilliant under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's so clever, it's a play on words. I want you to really understand what he says in chapter 2, verse 20. But you have been anointed. It is past tense. It is what we call punctiliar. It happened at a point in time, it is finished. And it doesn't ever have to happen again. You, he says, have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, That just sounds nice. Like, okay, the Holy One. Well, who is that? Is that the Father? Is that the Son? Is that the Spirit? Yes, and I don't know, but here's what John's saying. Anointed, you have to remember, is the word Christos. Christ means the anointed one. It's the translation of the Hebrew term Messiah or Mashiach, which means the anointed one. I cannot make a big enough deal about this, but I shall now attempt to do precisely that. John says, but you have been Christed by Christ. You have been Messiahed by Messiah. You've been anointed by the anointed one. I'll know who you think you think you are. You've been Christed by Christ. He has Christed you. Now I mean this. Whatever room you're sitting in, Second floor, third floor, first floor, sitting at home. Look around at the people who you can make eye contact with awkwardly, then quickly break it off because that's weird. That person has been Christed. That dude has been Mashiach. The person with whom you are in covenant has been Christed messiah anointed. Now, we don't look at ourselves that way often enough. We don't look at one another that way often enough. But John's heartfelt plea to these people at the early church in Ephesus is that they would understand. Don't you understand? You don't need any other secret knowledge. You don't need someone to come in and tell you, oh, here's varsity information. No, 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 no. You've been Christed by Christ. As far as the Father's concerned, you just like Jesus. I know better. You've been messiahed. You've been slathered is the technical term by Jesus. And we should think of ourselves thus, when we fail, not if, when, and think of one another thus, when they fail, not if, when. They've been Christed. They've been messiahed. They've been anointed. Verse 21, we got one of two purpose verses here. In this passage, I write to you not because you do not know the truth. I'm not correcting you. I'm not rebuking you. I'm just letting you know a little bit more in an amplified sense this is true. But because you know it and because no lie is of the truth, they were being accused. See, the people of Ephesus were being accused by these false teachers. You say that Jesus is God. You say that he was a man. You're liars. He can't be. That's broken. Because that was the cultural bombardment of the day was that matter was bad and spirit was good, and that had begun to infiltrate into the church. That was what they were fighting. We've got all other sorts of things that we're fighting against in our day. How was the world created? Was it created? All these different things. John says, they're accusing you of being liars. You're not liars. You are of the truth, and no lie is of the truth. Oh, 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 oh. You want to know who the liars are? I'll tell you who the liars are, John says in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. But he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the second member of the Godhead trinity, the sendable self of the Godhead. And anybody that denies that, nice, good, moral, decent, proper voting, good neighborhood living, nice car driving, casserole baking person that denies that about Jesus is antichrist. Again, that doesn't give you license to drive up and down Broadway and go, antichrist on your bicycle, I see you there. Don't do that. When they ring your doorbell and hand you a pamphlet, don't, ah, antichrist. Don't do that, that's not helpful. But you know, anybody who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God is Antichrist. The term in Greek can mean either opposed to Christ, the anointed one, or instead of Christ, as in something else is in his place. That's a whole separate sermon I would get into, but I really like my job, so I'm not going to touch that right now. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In other words, you can't have one without the other. They're a package deal. You can't say that there's multiple paths up the mountain. And No, 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 no. Jesus is who he says he was, did what he said he would do, or he isn't. You are either, please understand the binary difference. You are either Christed, Messiahed, anointed, or you're anti. I know that makes us feel like, wait, I really would prefer some gray area. Sorry, that's a different book. Not in there. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Here we go. Abide in the announcement. What had they heard from the beginning? Quite certain, quite clearly, quite concisely. There is a God, he is good. He loves sinful humanity. Despite all their embittered rebellion, he loves them. While they were still sinners, he sent his son to live a perfect life in thought, word, and deed, never, ever committing error in any capacity whatsoever. His finished scorecard was a perfect hundred. And he offered to exchange it with everybody whose scorecard was a perfect zero. Though they did not deserve it. And he lived and he died and he was buried. And he rose again, confirming that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And he ascended and we eagerly await his return. And in the meantime, he has sent his third member of the Godhead Trinity to indwell every believer so that we are literally on the earth. His purpose, his presence, and his peace. That's the good news. It's the great story. It's the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ. So we are to abide in that announcement. Not just think it's cool or wouldn't it be nice if it was true, but no, it's the absolute most true thing in my whole existence. And I live accordingly without even trying to. It's just true. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Let it be true. Decide that it's true and then live like it's true. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. One of the strangest verses in the whole letter. Where did that come from? He hasn't mentioned a promise yet. He won't mention the word promise again. In the entire book of 1 John, that's the only time the word promise shows up. Epangelion, the, the super message. Well, what he's saying is that's the final ultimate fruit of the gospel, eternal life. He's just in one swoop eliminated the things that human beings fear. Death, separation, uncertainty, gone. When you abide in the announcement, you are promised and living in the midst of eternal life now. And he promised. It's a Jewish reference back to Genesis twelve, fifteen, and 17 where God promised Abraham, even the Gentile will experience blessing that I will give them. John says, <laughs> this is that. The promise is now eternal life. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Second purpose statement I'm writing to remind you of what is true. Truth matters. I'm writing to remind you, to encourage you, to reignite, to reestablish the basis and the foundation of truth. Verse 27, but the anointing, the Christing, the Messiah ing that you received from him abides in you. <gasps> It's a person, it's not oil, it's a person. It is the very third member of the Godhead Trinity himself. You abide in the announcement, God himself will abide in you. This is astonishing, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, meaning you don't ever have to come to church anymore to listen to sermons. Uh, you might feel that way. That's not what he's talking about. People like to quote this to me all the time, <laughs> and I laugh and go, <laughs> stop it, seriously, that's not funny. No, you don't have to find any other secrets, no varsity secret knowledge. The Spirit of God indwells you and he will illumine his word among his people. You don't have to find some secret number code or some secret practice. No, 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 no. no. Remember what you had from the beginning, the gospel. But as his anointing teaches you, isn't that good? As his Christing, as his Messiahing, as his anointing teaches you about everything, did you know that? There is no facet, there is no aspect, there is no part of your life that the Holy Spirit is not actively involved in. None. The Christing that is happening in and on you, the Messiahing, the anointing that is happening in and on you is 24-7, even while you sleep and dream. That's amazing. I wouldn't spend 20 minutes with you But the Godhead indwells you and wants to be a part of every thought, word, and deed that is about you. I'm kidding. I'd spend 25 minutes with you. And it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So there's that word, abide. The Greek word is meno. It has the idea of dwell or remain or exist. And it's a call back to Moses in the Old Testament when he would go into the tent of meeting and he would be with God. Face to face, like a friend talks to a friend? How is that even possible? Well, I'll tell you, we're pretty sure that it is a pre incarnate Christ. And Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would abide, it says. He would be with God. He'd just be with him, but there was still a distance. And Moses would come out and his face would glow and then it would go dim. But John says, Oh, don't you understand? (laughs) You're the tent of meeting. You are the tent and God has moved into your space to abide with you that there is no space. There is no distance. It literally could not get better until it does. That's why Paul will say later on, we with unveiled faces consider him and our faces don't diminish. They get brighter and brighter and they glow and they glow. That's what it is to abide. Let me land with three very quick implications. And then I know we're quite a bit over time, but we're going to have a discussion panel very briefly after this. Let me just give these three very quick implications. Taken right from this text, it'll just help us to, to think about our lives as we go, to sort of make this implicit in our influence as we go about our Christed lives. Number one, if it's new, it probably isn't true. That's what John's gonna say over and over again. Listen, you heard the gospel at the beginning and you believed. Now, I'm not saying that we don't actually develop in theological and doctrinal understanding. Now we have an articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And now we have a doctrine of the articulation of vicarious substitutionary penal uh, atonement. Yes, we, we, we kind of develop in those things, but we don't ever add anything to the gospel. The gospel plus anything equals nothing. That's the only math I can do right there. The gospel plus anything equals nothing. Anybody who comes to you says, yes, I know you've heard it said, but we have another book. We have another resource. We have a pamphlet. And it says that Jesus was a prophet or he was a created being. Stop it, stop it, stop it. I have no time. I have no space for this. Bye. You don't have to poke them in the aorta and call them antichrist. That's bad neighboring. But you have no time and space for that. If it's new, it probably isn't true. Let me just be a little bit more dogmatic. If it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new. Next. Second point from this. Sincerity does not determine truth. If I cock my head to the side, go, you guys, really? No, really, you guys, I sit still and Jesus talks to me and um, he tells me how awesome I am and I haven't been to church or read a Bible in 30 years. But you guys, it's really true. No, it isn't. It's not true. It's not. Sincerity does not determine truth. Please understand, these false teachers, again, we would contend they came from Jerusalem and Judea and went all the way over to Western Turkey. That's a tough trek. And they were sincere. They believed what they were saying. It's not like they were wearing robes that on the back said, false teacher. Because you could spot those people and go, you know what, let's not invite them to the potluck. They were very sincere. They thought they were doing what was right. The people that you encounter that deny the Trinity and that Jesus is the son of God are very sincere. And they're probably some of the most moral, decent, great people you'll ever encounter. And they deny the one who is the anointed one, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ, who Christ's me. They deny him. And it is above my pay grade to go, well, you know, they're they're just misunderstood. No. No. Sincerity does not determine truth. Number three, we cannot know the Father apart from the Son. Now, I've already said that somewhat as we were walking through the passage. Let me be as explicit as I possibly can here. It's Jesus, and it's about Jesus, sent by the Father, Now, in the abiding of the Holy Spirit, we cannot know God apart from his son. And I know, I get it, that sounds intolerant. It sounds exclusivist. What do you want me to say? I didn't die on a cross, hung naked, beaten, mocked, and shamed, spat upon. Die, go into the grave for three days and rise again. That's what the death-proof king says is. There's no other way to the Father but through me. I must Christ you. I must Mashiach you. I must anoint you. And every other faith construct in the cosmos says, you can Christ yourself. You can Messiah yourself. You can anoint yourself. But that is a great grand lie from the pit of hell. No, instead we are to abide in the announcement. He is the one who who has anointed us so that we are the ones walking around, establishing his character. So we want to abide in the announcement of the gospel.